Today I'm speaking with Molly Nagler, who is the Chief Learning Officer at Pepsi. Molly is passionate about developing a learning strategy for employees that fits their needs. Molly and I talk about the importance of fostering creativity and what it really means for an organization to have a strong learning culture. Hi, Molly. It's so wonderful to see you. Kelly, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure and definitely the team's absolute pleasure. I'm supposed to pass on a hello to you from Shelby, uh, who loved working on the project with you. So I wanted to make sure that I uh, told her that I would say hello, and I wanted to make sure that you got that. <laughs> thank you. She's, she's a total star. We loved working with her and the whole team. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I think the first question that I wanted to get into with you was understanding your journey into executive education. How did you, how did you start on this career path? And then how did you learn, land in such an amazing role that I bet you shape, I, well, actually, I know you shape every single day as the chief learning officer at Pepsi. Um, so education in my family has always been a big deal and something that like I grew up just knowing was important, right, for success and happiness in life. And um, I wound up going to UC Berkeley to get a graduate degree in public policy, uh, which is a sort of a random choice for someone who winds up being a chief learning officer. But I learned some really good analytical skills that I use all the time. So I, I don't regret it. And it was a great experience. Um, and UC Berkeley has, um, I think, the highest number of first generation college students in the country. And so it was this incredibly inspiring atmosphere where people go and transform their lives. And so I knew after being there that I wanted uh, to stay in higher education, but I wanted to serve, um, you know, the non-traditional learner in the sense of adults, right? Like people who had already gotten the, all the degrees they ever intend to get. And because careers are long and jobs change frequently that they wanted to, um, you know, go back to school for, um, small interventions here and there for like specific needs, like a women's leadership program or a negotiations program. So I, I stayed at Berkeley and I worked at the Haas School of Business in their executive education department, working on customized programs for companies. And then I moved over to Yale School of Management and wound up running um, executive education there and got to um, start up some online learning programs as well as um, just more open enrollment rather than just customized for companies. Um, and I had, I really enjoyed that. But um, the one thing that you don't get at a university is the ability to see the impact of learning over time because people come and go. And so it's like this amazing, like refreshing vitality, but you're not sure the impact that you've made. And so when I got the chance to come to PepsiCo and um, you know install myself for, for a long period of time in one company to see really what learning is capable of. Um, I just couldn't pass that up. And we also have 270,000 employees globally. So I would have had to stay at Yale a really long time um, to serve that many people. And so it's, um, that's, that's like absolutely why I decided to come to PepsiCo in uh, February of 2019. So I think one of the things that really stands out in your journey was the starting point and that interest in analytics. And I'm sure at PepsiCo, that is something that distinguishes you not only in the spirit of the learning and the passion and making an impact on people's lives, but it's that, uh, it's that 
interest and passion for analytics. Yes. Um, so we're still really early in our learning analytics journey. And, um, you know, I think traditionally, like, you know, learning people might feel like they're really just, you know, designers or they're program managers and they're there to um, add to the curriculum at a company. Um, but you really, you know, we're responsible for going beyond that to business outcomes and impact on careers. And it's very hard to measure. I mean, it's very hard to draw a direct line from going to a five-day leadership program to being promoted three years later, right? Like we all know that there's tons of different things that are happening in someone's career and the business, um, timing matters, all sorts of things. But uh, that doesn't mean that, you, you know, you give up, right? You give up trying. So what we're looking at now is trying to, um, you know, map um, careers, career outcomes and, and um, business outcomes to different talent initiatives that we do at PepsiCo. Um, we, uh, one, one thing that um, we care about is networking, right, at PepsiCo, like your network size and your network diversity and breadth, because in a really large company, it's important to um, know where to go and know who to ask and, and to get things done. So we looked at a, a program we launched called Being Visible Virtually, and we did that during the end of the pandemic to help people, you know, understand like how to keep their network going. And um, after we we ran the program, we looked at organizational network analysis to see if their network sizes and diversity had changed, and they um, the size did increase. And we were able, to, our our amazing HR analytics team was able to pinpoint that 14% of that increase was due to the program. So it was amazing to get that level of precision and also really rewarding to have contributed to that. Um, another way we're looking at learning analytics is with our diversity and inclusion training. So we wanna know if um, folks who complete the the training, um, the development that, that we offer on how to be an inclusive manager and um, how to be an ally and that sort of thing, whether they whether managers are better mentors afterward or whether they spend more time mentoring. And so we've um, we look at do they have more one to ones with their direct reports and uh, so far the early data is really promising there. Um, so you'd also want to look at other things like, um, you know, like selection of candidates for open roles and promotions and things, but those are much longer term. And so in the short term, you can look at things like their, you know, their behavior um, through the meeting patterns analysis. That's fantastic. I love hearing about uh, the depth and rigor on, on analytics, even when you kind of have to make do, you know, you want to measure that long-term impact. Like you said, three years out, you know, how do you know? Yeah thing can be a causal mechanism of this thing three years out. But sometimes you, you kind of still have to have that commitment to analytics in the first place to find those proxy measures to at least start that journey of creating a relationship between a program and understanding its, its impact. Exactly. And, you know, we also do, of course, we look at participant reaction and satisfaction because, um, you know, just that sort of buzz around your programming and that like, are you enjoying it? These there's sorts of things like make learning more sticky. Um, and so we'll benchmark those satisfaction scores against um, external companies. We, we partner with a business school called IMD 
to look at their database of executive programs and their satisfaction scores and benchmark against our own um, and to understand, you know, at least how even how we're performing at that level. So one of the things that I know that you're passionate about is a learning culture and building a learning culture. What does that mean to you? Let's uh, let's share your wonderful vision on what a learning culture is. Yeah, learning culture is such a funny term because it can get tossed around as both like praise and insult at the same company, right? Like, oh, we have a great learning culture or no, we don't have a learning culture at all. And there's nothing to point to to disprove <laughs> either one. And so like it's it's often very like ill-defined, like a widely used but ill-defined term. And so I um, found out about a, a framework about learning culture. Um, it's called the the learning organization framework from Karen Watkins and Victoria Marsick. And so they break down learning culture into like very um, specific and actionable things like the organization is connected to its external environment. People are rewarded for learning. People feel comfortable asking questions in meetings. Um, there's ways to capture and share knowledge. And so you can, you know, assess yourself as an organization or as a team against all those things and then build action plans. Um, so that's, I wouldn't say that we've, you know, rolled it out very widely yet, but at least it's something that we talk about and um, are kind of are gearing up to, um, to work on and, and can explain to people when they ask or they start talking about learning culture that we can just bring it back to reality um, in that way. And then another thing Another way we conceptualize learning culture is through um, enablers and barriers. So um, you want to make it as easy as possible to learn, right? Like you can't have a learning culture if learning is not available or if it's hard to find, if there's a lot of friction between the learner and the, and the knowledge that they want to gain or the content they want to consume. And so we have a new learner experience platform. We call it PepU Degreed. And it uses AI and machine learning to like recommend content to you based on your profile and your learning habits. And it's social. So like I could follow you, Kelly, and you could follow me. Um, so there's like, there's this, like fun little voyeuristic element to it um, and allows you to be curious and see, see what other people are learning. So that's a big way that we've taken friction out of the process. There's also a lot of micro learning and just different types of content. So podcasts, videos, articles. Um, and so forth. And then, um, you know, we also want to take away barriers. And we, the, the study that we did with your team and with Shelby and her colleagues was to look specifically at barriers to learning. And, you know, again, hearkening back to my earlier point about the job of a learning professional is not just to create more content and more programs. Um, so we wanted to know what was standing in the way of people um, keeping people from learning, if anything. And um, I had a feeling, my hypothesis was that we had actually had too much content and people had choice overload, but I was wrong. We do not have too much content. People were generally able to find what they were looking for. They felt supported by their manager to learn um, that there was like a decent amount of, you know, a good learning culture, <laughs> if you will. Um, but time was the biggest barrier and still is the biggest barrier. So people feel like they don't have time to learn. Um, and that's a that's a really tough one. I think we could have like an entire session on people's perception of time and how to like make someone feel time wealthy rather than time poor. Um, 
but you know, one way is just like, you know, the simple act of um, chunking up learning content so that you can consume it in the flow of work. And that's what the learning platform enables, fortunately. Um, another is a, some, like a study I found that if people feel like they're um, pursuing goals that are in conflict, like, um, you know, it, they don't even have to be time-based goals. Like my goal to eat healthy food or my goal to be healthy and my goal to eat tasty chips and um, desserts and stuff like that, then they'll feel time constrained. Um, you know, my goal to be a good employee and my goal to be a good parent, for example. And I, so I was wondering, I've been wondering if people feel like their goal to learn conflicts with their goal to get work done and that it's a zero sum game um, so that we might be able to solve that through a communications campaign or series of campaigns that talk about how learning makes work easier and learning makes work faster and better. Uh, and then that might pe make people feel like they had more time to learn when of course, you know, we all only have 24 hours in the day and it wouldn't require me to um, mess with anybody's calendar, right? Or like even try to make them set aside special time to learn that then gets scheduled over because that's the way work life is and we all have a lot of meetings. So there's a tremendous amount of scientific thinking in what you've described so far. And scientific thinking is what I'm absolutely passionate about because I believe that it's a way to help organizations sort of cut through the muddle. It's a way to find out what you're curious about, articulate those questions in a way that they can be asked and in a way that excites other people that stimulates hypotheses about what might be driving that particular problem. Scientific thinking then creates, you know, specific and measurable uh, frameworks to help us to find out, did we actually answer the question? It relies on analytics to help provide the data. It's about going, I was wrong about my hypothesis that this thing was gonna work. Like you said, I was wrong on this thing. It's about having that kind of leadership courage and having the data that answers that question and gives you that confidence to go, hmm, okay, there's something else going on. Like the relationship between scientific thinking and strategy is so powerful. And you've touched on so many of those fundamental building blocks of scientific thinking. So I'm curious what you think the overall impact is of a learning culture then to something that's even more aspirational, which is how do we tie what we know about leading with purpose to making a better world for all stakeholders? How do you see building a learning culture as serving PepsiCo employees? Um, so I think this is a wonderful time in our lives um, for democratizing learning. And I, it's coming from a lot of different places. I mean, at PepsiCo, our strategy is called winning with purpose. Um, we, are, we do tons of work through the PepsiCo Foundation with um, communities in need, whether that's giving meals to, you know, like um, investing in black owned restaurants and so forth. And, um, you know, sustainability is also a huge deal. So that's definitely like in the water, so to speak at PepsiCo and that, you know, our job 
as a corporate citizen is is very very important. Um, and so everyone in the company has to think and um, like how does my job support that? And with learning, um, it's really about democratizing development within the company. And you know everything I've said before about like um, reducing barriers to learning and reducing frictions and that sort of thing. Um, and it's and it's also just like at a company our size, it's about designing for scale. So, you know, in learning programs, people want to feel special and they want to feel like they've been selected for something that's really going to take them to the next level because of like their great performance and so forth. And so um, you want to like, I think you can deliver on that in the design of a program without sacrificing the scale and reach of your learning agenda. And so um, the pandemic has been a bit of a gift in terms of um, getting everybody on board with online learning. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot, we were sort of in our own way about like believing what needed to be in person and what needed to be online. And now like everyone was forced to pivot. We moved tons of programs online, learners logged in on Zoom or whatever platform you're using. And, um, you know, we're still able to like deliver lively, engaging, um, informative sessions in an online environment. And so that will absolutely continue after the pandemic, because why would we walk away from this like amazing new mindset and tool set um, to get more development out to everyone else? Um, so that's part of the democratization. The other is that we're making some um, big commitments in the future about just uh, reskilling in general and investments we're making in the frontline population and um, you know offering like bachelor's and master's degrees and um, through a new partnership that we have and you know we've we've had a in the past a, a traditional tuition reimbursement uh, program and we're working really hard on expanding that um, so that people can get in the driver's seats of their careers and um, you know grapple with and thrive alongside this digital transformation that we're all going through so that's how I see purpose. It's um, really enabling people to do meaningful work and have rewarding careers, whether that's at Pepsi or somewhere else. That's awesome. There's a lot of innovation uh, in terms of what you said, in terms of a uh, new platform, in terms of programs like, you know, finding out what's rewarding to employees, um, you know, the, the evolving from the tuition reimbursement program to a new model. There were other questions that emerged in our project together. There were actually a number of hypotheses and, and, you, and you talked about one of them that you thought was going to be a big barrier, which was this issue of too much choice. And it's interesting that that was the hypothesis that you thought that would be you know, probably the biggest barrier. You guys have so many assets yeah. available. And that's a very reasonable intuition that it's about too much choice. And we see that actually across lots of different domains that company leaders think one of the challenges that they have for their customers or for their employees is that they're presenting them with, with too much choice. But we were able to rule that one out Mm -hmm. We were also able to rule out another classic one, which is that people weren't really even just kind of aware. Yeah. But they were aware. 
they are aware of the various programs, not of course, every single one, right. but aware that these programs were available to them. And so awareness is often a kind of a, a thing that leaders think, oh, or, or about customers or about employees. It's like, oh, this is just a problem of awareness. Yeah. The case. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, Pepsi is an amazing marketing organization and we treat our employees like consumers and we have logos and colorful campaigns and, um, you know, everything under the sun to, to get that message out. And, um, you know, I think also our leaders are good role models for learning. So our CEO, um, talks about it and, you know, just other, other senior leaders. I mean, it was the first quarterly town hall we had after the pandemic struck, um, was when you, we, we would, each of the business units would talk about, you know, what they're up to, their progress and accomplishments. And, um, after the, the, the beginning of the pandemic, that meeting and those updates were really about lessons learned. And it wasn't framed that way, but it was like, how am I changing what I'm doing? How am I um, adjusting my normal routines and decision-making um, to like deal with this emergency, this global emergency that we're in? Um, and so we wound up, after I, I heard that, my team and I decided that we would write a series of case studies on um, COVID-19 at PepsiCo so that we could preserve for posterity all these amazing examples of ingenuity, um, you know, teams that had never worked together before were working together, you know, like there was no more silo thinking, it was all about end to end. And, um, and so we couched the case studies not as like, you know, here's a resource for surviving the next global pandemic. It was very much like, what are the transferable lessons and skills that we've learned um, at this time that you know can apply at any point. Like we're, we'll always face resource constraints, right? We'll always face a staff shortage or, or you know, a, a broken supply chain. Um, and so, you know, just these like the lessons learned were really much more um, thirty thousand foot than like, you know, we were able to get enough PPE type stuff. It was much more like how the teams work together, um, how people who had you know, did not have a leader title, were able to contribute and um, yeah, like just step out of their day-to-day -day, um, and add more value than would typically be asked or required of them um, in other circumstances. So it was like just a very inspirational time. And it's fantastic that that's being documented in a way that works for the future. You know, that's yet another scientific principle. Uh, it, it just goes back in time. If, if you don't document your discovery, the next person who documents that discovery will get credit for it. <laughs> that's right. So that diligence around documenting those learnings is another part of, an, of, of a scientific uh, culture. So, so kudos uh, to you and the team for, for Thank seeking you. the opportunity and getting it done and then using that as something to, to build on for, for the future. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's been fun. I mean, again, like COVID has been a time of like deep stress, but also a time of great um, innovation and pulling together. Yeah, 
Yeah, so another thing that had emerged from the project, which uh, I thought is a is a very interesting one, and, and you've already you had already touched on it, but that's it's this idea of employees' definition of learning being too narrow, mm -hmm. and what they thought learning was, and therefore in their own self evaluation of whether or not they were engaging in learning was based on this this benchmark. But we actually found something very different. We found something that really actually ends up aligning to your philosophy, which is that there are all kinds of learning opportunities that happen inside of companies. And employees do recognize that. But I'd love for you to talk about that some more because I think, think that what was explored there is something that's very important for other chief learning officers and, and leaders of people. Yeah, um, right. So we looked at whether, um, people were too narrowly defining learning as like sitting in a classroom or reading a book. But we found instead that they understood that like, you know, reading an article that a friend or colleague says, sends um, is learning. That having a one-on-one -on -one with someone, going to coffee with someone, um, watching a TED talk, so that they, they, our employees like have a very expansive definition of learning, um, which is really exciting to me because you know, it, um, it's, it's just the truth. First of all, I mean, you know, we, we want people to, to feel like they're developing and growing through lots of different, um, interactions and lots of different opportunities. And, um, we'd also done some work in the past before I joined about employees who have more one-on-ones with their boss feel more developed. And like, so not a book was cracked, right? not not a video like or whatever you know like not, no no syllabus was written um and yet these folks are feeling like they're growing in their role and i think it's important for the mindset of a learning team to um to know that they have all these different levers at their disposal so i think it's just actually as important a, a lesson for the like learning professionals um that people experience learning and in lots of different ways and that we can influence those. So like, um, you know, maybe we should, you know, have a, a training to teach managers about how to have great one-on-ones or better one-on-one -on -one meetings. And that's a learning opportunity. So rather than like, you know, a more formal learning opportunity for the employees, you just like help the managers manage better. Um, and that, is like development for the employee, if that makes sense. So it does. there's like a lot of ways to skin the cat. It does. And it, it ties uh, nicely in with the work on building out the network model. Yeah. It's, it's touch point, knowing how to access those resources. That's constantly informing people of a new way to, to do things. So it just builds on something that people might already have a competency around it's not yeah. an actual barrier to learning. Those paradigms around what is learning are already already open. And now you're providing yet another tool to help facilitate that. That's right. That's right. And you know, people like you know, at work as an employee, like you want to feel like your company's investing in you, right? And so if that perception of being invested in can can include a lot of different stimuli, like meetings and videos and you know, the town hall, then that's just going to, I think, increase 
job satisfaction for everyone rather than you're like waiting around for that one time a year where you may be going to a formal program. That's one of the other, um, I think, more subtle discoveries that we had in the project goes back to this issue. So the fundamental, the fundamental challenge that we found was people's belief that they didn't have time, right? It's, yeah. it was the, it's the time scarcity, but underneath that, it's this mental accounting framework that we have for time. We, That's right. We have this mental model, even though we recognize learning happens in so many different ways, there's a little bit of a paradox between how we actually expect learning to happen, this time where I'm sitting down and I'm engaged in learning, and it's just kind of this mental model of what, of what learning looks like. When we asked uh, through our diagnostic tool how people felt about the time that they had, they said, oh, you know, absolutely time scarce, just not enough time. I wish I had carved out time. But then part of our experiment included this uh, kind of a Trojan horse when we asked people if they would be willing to read an article. I think it was very, you know, very specific, an eight page article. Yeah. Over long, it might take a listener to think, well, oh, reading an eight page article. Some of us might think that's pretty quick. Some of us might think that's a, 15 minute, 30 minute commitment to get through an eight page article. So we had them imagine this very specific scenario. And we asked them, when, when, when would you have some time? We were to send this to you. When would you have some time to, uh, to review that? And it turns out people actually had time. They were able to, oh yeah, I can carve out that 15 minutes or 30 minutes this, this week, or sometimes it would be next week, but that line of sight on being able to make that time was actually there. And when we dig a little deeper, we find that one of the challenges that people have is in actually just following through, yeah. making that time happen, helping them to, to follow through on those intentions. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so a couple things on that. I mean, meeting people, like reaching people in meetings they already have um, is a great way to reach them with learning and like help them follow through um, on those commitments. So we try to like help managers leverage team meetings with things like meeting in a box um, for like a little bit of learning because you're already there, you have a captive audience, easy. Um, another thing is just like, uh, you know, book clubs or peer things that make it social um, so that you, you know, it's like you're getting this double benefit of building your network around a learning opportunity um, or you're getting a break, right? Like you're having a, a coffee break and, and you're learning something um, with, a, with a group of people uh, or other ways to do that. Yeah, that's just embedding it right. Yeah. Right, almost in an unrecognizable, yeah. unrecognizable way that doesn't require that, that, that seemingly difficult, tough carve out. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and that's our learner experience platform because sends, um, you know, it, it uses AI and machine learning to recommend resources to you. It's sort of like, you know, Amazon, where like, if you like that, you might like this, uh, I think is also helpful um, as just a, a nudge and a, and a feeling of personalization and relevance. That sparks that curiosity. So yes. instead of telling people, oh, 
please continue learning new things. Instead, you, you serve it up and you facilitate that curiosity because you're like, oh, what's Molly up to? I want to know what Molly's reading. Yeah. So curiosity or the, you know, the targeted recommendations serve up something. And I'm like, I don't have to like be intentional and have a whole learning plan. My curiosity is, is just driving me there. And that's fantastic to bring both the culture together as well as the technology to make, you know, to make this an easier journey. There's, there's something I'm worried about though. And, and it's this issue of curiosity. I love to ask a million questions and I love to ask our clients stuff like, how do you know all the time? And I get frustrated because I feel that so much of our childlike wonder and our willingness to just ask, you know, you know, you have to ask permission. Is it okay? I'm going to ask a dumb question. It's like, we have to ask permission to ask something that we're curious about or we don't know the answer about. And it actually, uh, research shows that this actually gets harder over time. The older that people get, the more hesitant we are, the more nervous we are to ask those questions. And so our curiosity just kind of gets, you know, that back burner loses, we lose that confidence. And I wanted to ask you because curiosity is so fundamental to the scientific method or strategy or innovation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we want to look at mm-hmm. this, but um, t- I'd love to hear your views on curiosity and how do you foster curiosity at PepsiCo? Um, so, you know, we're trying to, like, a few ways, like we have a set of um, like, kind of values or behaviors that we call the PepsiCo way. And one of them is voice opinions fearlessly. And so a question isn't the same as an opinion, but it's, um, it, it sort of is a way of getting at it, right? So where you're saying like, I don't understand this, or, you know, basically it's okay to say what's on your mind and, you know, in a professional way. Um, so I think that helps a lot. And I hear you know, people will say that, they're, they're just saying it to me, they'll be like, you know, all right, I'm going to voice opinions fearlessly and say, you know, whatever. And then that'll break the ice and then you'll start to get more questions. And I think, so you really need psychological safety um, for people to, to have curiosity. And that's something that we, um, we do teach. Um, and it's also really important for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so it's, it, it shows up in, in different types of um, curriculum. Uh, again, I mean, the other way, just, you know, reducing the frictions again, right? So that if you're feeling curious, there's nothing standing in your way of, of getting access to that knowledge you're seeking. Um, we are going to, um, just on the cusp of, of rolling out a new talent marketplace at PepsiCo, that uses um, skills data to match you to internal projects, jobs, but also networks. And so, um, you know, if I have the goal one day of say being chief human resource officer um, and there's certain skills I know I need to get there, I can go into this platform and find the people that have those skills and reach out to them. And, and so it's um, like the self-initiated uh, sort of mentoring or, or networking and, um, again, in a big company, like just being able to track down who does what is um, is no small feat. So I'm excited about the the potential for this platform. Um, the other one is, you know, you have to wonder if there's an incentive issue with curiosity. Like, um, 
how much do you need to incentivize people to be curious or to learn? And, um, you know, I don't, maybe that's another project for us, Kelly, but I, I don't know the answer to that because I, I do know that research shows that when people are intrinsically motivated and you layer on extrinsic motivators like cash rewards or um, that it crowds out the intrinsic motivation. So um, I don't know how much incentive we should be giving for people to be curious. Um, but, you know, we're thinking, we're doing it, um, looking at badging and, and credentialing, which I know a lot of companies do very successfully uh, as a way to give a, I think like a social cachet incentive um, for people to earn a badge in a certain area. Um, I also, we have a, an internal recognition platform where you can send a smile um, and some, some, some smiles have points associated with them where you can turn that into, you know, gear or prizes or material goods and others are just like a pat on the back type thing. And so, um, you know, I've, I've sent smiles without any kind of monetary value to folks who are achieve active learner status in, in our learner platform or like, um, you know, everyone who logged in to the learner experience platform in the first year. So just for some, cause that is public recognition. Um, and it, it seems like people really appreciate it. I get lots and lots of emails um, in response, but I mean, the question in my mind is, um, you know, is there something like, you know, do you, do you like literally pay people to, to be curious and learn? Do you give things away? Um, I don't know the answer to that. It's complicated. On the badging side, we've we've run experiments in that area, and we can talk about the kinds of you know some of the things that work and some of the things that don't work as well. And it's uh, it's best when we combine these different strategies together: a badge, yeah. certain kind of incentive, and some of the other principles can give us the the, the biggest impact to uh, help people achieve the, their best outcomes. Yeah, I think like, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, if you think of the spectrum from like, you know, the pure, like innocent curiosity of the child um, to the, um, like the, you know, the career oriented skill building, like extrinsic rewards feel right for the skill building, but there's just something like impure about like polluting that curiosity with incentives. And maybe that's like my bias, right? That I need to get over. Um, and uh, I just, I'd like to unpack that more to understand what incentives make sense on what end of that spectrum. Absolutely, yeah, there's some fantastic work because curiosity is such a fundamental part of scientific thinking. And there's work by people that you would be surprised by like George Lowenstein, for instance, who's looked at the role of curiosity inside of, of, of the, the process of innovation that I think could be very interesting for us to explore together. All right, let's do it. So, let's do it. I think so my last question for you is, is just about behavioral insights. Why is this important? Why, why, is, this, why is this important for companies? Um, okay, so I'll just, again, talking about learning for a second, like, um, so we'll be going back to the office July 6th and but not full time so it's going to be you know you go into the office when the work merits um and the same token i've i've asked my team i've told told my team that they need to go in at least once a week and because i think that learning is an inherently anthropological profession 
and you need to go and see how people are working, where they're running into trouble, like where people congregate, you know, what's happening in the cafeteria, what do they do at their desks, and um, so that you can serve them better, right? You can like help reduce frictions in their lives and, um, you know, learning should also be ambient. So you, maybe it's a poster on the wall. Um, you know, it doesn't, again, like informal learning super important. It doesn't have to be a formal class. And so um, that's where I see like behavioral insights is really getting it like a human centered approach to work. And Pepsi's so good at like understanding our consumers and we use a lot of behavioral science and the consumer side of the business. And there's absolutely no reason why we should, um, you know, put up an iron curtain and not use it for our internal, you know, HR initiatives. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, like we're here to support the business strategy and we're here to help people do meaningful work and build rewarding careers. And, um, you know, that, that happens like hour by hour and meeting by meeting. And so to see that in real time and like, just think expansively about how learning can support, um, that's, that's where I see um, behavioral insights and that would apply to all kinds of things in HR, like nudging to fill out your performance review or um, nudging to get a physical, right? So that, you know, you're using your medical benefits and you're staying healthy. Um, so I think it's anytime you're, you you want to influence behavior, that's where behavioral insights helps. That's fantastic. Well, Speaking of thinking expansively, I want to thank you so much. Uh, this was an absolute incredible cascade of ideas and thoughts and also just very inspirational. I love your passion for learning, trying new things, uh, your natural scientific thinking. It's always a delight to talk with you, Molly, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Kelly. Um, I really am like a behavioral science geek. I in another life, I want to, I want to have your job. So maybe we can, uh, maybe we can switch uh, when we're reincarnated or something like that. But um, thank you so much for having me. It's like a, such a joy to talk about all this. Wonderful. Thank you. Mm -hmm.